Welcome to Women Who Sarcast. I'm Kathy Barron, and today my co-host is a motivational speaker, comedian, writer, and author, and a hope dealer. Her new book, Soul Not Skin, launches spring 2019. Please welcome Jen Slumack to Women Who Sarcast. Hey, Jen. Hey, how you doing? Great. Thanks for being on the show today. Absolutely. Um, we're just going to get right into it and just kind of talk about the book and what inspired you to, to write the novel. Well, thanks for having me here. Um, what inspired me, this is a book that I've been pregnant with for very many years. It's mm-hmm. just kind of, uh, it's one of those things <laughs> where um, I've always known that I've had stories in me, but I guess I had to finish living some of them until uh, before I was actually ready to put it on, put it down on paper. Right. You know, I've tried yeah. to write it for so many years and I've just... Uh, you know, I've got digital files and digital file folders galore full of starts and stops, you know? Yeah. Um, but I finally hit a place where it just started flowing out of me. Um, and so I'm writing, I wrote the book because one, I think I needed to, I just feel like it's, um, it's something that I've, that I'm supposed to do is write this story, mm-hmm. uh, and the ones that, that I intend to follow, uh, it with, um, Mainly because my big motivation is to hopefully tell a story that um, people can relate to, that they can identify All themselves right. in, and um, you know, I tell I tell some I tell some truths in it that you know, hopefully people can identify with the difficulties that we go through, and uh, and I can bring them through to hope. You know, because yeah. life is good today. Yeah. How did you come up with the hope dealer? Because that's pretty genius. Yeah, thank you. I didn't come up with it. I wish I could <laughs> claim it, but uh, I heard that once and it stuck. I was like, that's yeah. that's it. Yeah, that's pretty much who. Uh, and I'm I'm a woman in, in long-term recovery, and so I probably heard it a time or two in in, uh, in my community of recovery folks where, you know, we've gone from dope dealers to hope dealers. Right. So, no, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I wish I made it up. I love it that much, too. But, yeah, it's not mine. I just use it. Yeah. Um, so how would you describe your book, Soul Not Skin, so that people can get an idea? Well, it's, um, it's a story about a little girl that uh, it's, it's based on my life. It is based on my life. I chose fiction over memoir for the simple fact that, number one, um, I don't remember a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to be able to have the, uh, you know, I wanted to be able to have the tool of fiction to be able yeah. to fill in some things. Um, or to just take some liberties with the story, maybe tell more of the story in a single character Mm -hmm. when maybe that whole piece of it was actually belonged to a five-year span with six characters. Uh, You know, I just wanted to be able to tell the story more than I wanted to tell the facts. Right. So, um, so I chose fiction, but it is based on my life, um, and the people in my life. Mm -hmm. And, oh, and another reason I chose fiction too, is because I love my family. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I tell them, I said, you know what? No one was harmed in this telling of this story. It's like, look, some of this stuff really went down and no matter if it's true or false in, in their perspective, the reality is this is my story this is how I experienced it or this is a story that I feel like I need to tell Um, but you know what a lot of times when it looks like I'm the victim to something they were also they were in their own pain yeah you know and um, and I'm not trying to throw my family under the bus and so uh, we've all grown and and, uh, man we just we're all on our feet somehow you know so I told I told everybody that's that is represented in the book one way or another friends or family or exes or whatever and I said listen 
This is going to be fiction, so if somebody reads it and thinks that they found you in it, you just let them know you don't know what I was talking about. (laughs) And and you've got an out. And they're like, oh, thanks so much. That's cool. (laughs) Well, I think we grew up. I'm the youngest of six kids. So when I was in high school, it was just me. Yeah. But before that, my next sibling up is like four years older. And I remember having a conversation with her about something that happened. And she's like, and she was there in the room. I know she was. And she's like, I I didn't, that didn't, that's not how it happened. So everybody has their own story, their own perspective, their own take on things. And they could be sitting right there with you. And Absolutely. have a totally different view of what happened. And to that point, that's that's a big reason why I wrote the book is because as a young girl realizing that I was gay mm-hmm. and growing up, my dad is a minister, a retired minister. So um, I grew up in the church initially. Yeah. Um, and all of the confusion and everything that sort of came with, with those realities, right? Yeah. Um, seemingly conflicting realities that, you know, maybe I do or maybe I don't resolve eventually. But yeah. Um, that and then and then you know moving into alcoholism and all of these different things and just just kind of watching that journey and um you know i feel like it's a really important story number one because i didn't find a book like this when i was struggling Mm -hmm. it may have existed if it did i never found it yeah um i would have loved to find it i would have i think probably uh i think it would have helped me a lot to have this book when i was struggling um with my faith and with my sexuality and with my uh, drinking and all of those things yeah so I want to kind of put out the book that I wish I'd had no that's great yeah I think more people need to do that so how did you uh get involved in comedy way back when back in the day (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and why did you get out I mean I understand why you got out for the the recovery but I don't know if there's a quick or simple answer to any of this. So let me let me do this. Um, I'll give you the short version. Uh, when I was a, a little girl, there were two things that I was really interested in. One was making movies that mattered, and one was uh, experiencing jail or prison without hurting anybody to get there. Really? Strangely. So you wanted to experience those, being in jail or prison? I remember when I was a little girl thinking, because I had met people who had been incarcerated, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking wow, that's someplace I'll never be able to go unless I do something bad to get there. Right. And like totally off limits to me. Like I'll never go there and I'll never see it except for on TV. And I don't believe TV all the time. Right. Right. Um, So yeah, as a little girl, I remember having that. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know what that's (laughs) about. Do you know the psyche behind that? Yeah, I don't know, man. Don't tell me. Don't don't analyze that one. Um, The long and short of it is that I found... um, I found comedy was uh, something that I uh, got a taste of in college for the first time. Um, always, always had a. I was always a big fan of Gilda Radner mm. and Lucille Ball. Yeah, and those ladies, you know, and man, they just blew my mind that they could be out there uh, making people laugh. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's like wow, they're freaking females out there and they're rocking it, you know. Yeah. Um, Lily Tomlin. Lily one. Tomlin. Yeah. Um, the other one that I can see, Carol Burnett. Oh, my God, Carol Burnett. Just these these women are genius, mm-hmm. you know? Um, Whoopi Goldberg, when she came out with the one-woman show. Um, so I, I had seen all of that. It all affected me. Jane Curtin from SNL, early years, um, all of that stuff. And so it was always in me that I kind of wanted to be on stage and, mm-hmm. and perform. But really what I wanted to do was make movies that mattered, like movies that, that told stories. Hmm. Um, so I was in college, and I was at an event. It was a... a gay, lesbian, bisexual, 
I don't remember which letters we used back then. It was like 20 years ago. Uh, I think there's only three back I then. I think there was. I think it was the LGB right. coalition, right? So um, so there was some event that was going on. Suzanne Westenhofer, I think, came yeah. out. And uh, Ladies on the Couch was a group back then. Um, and somehow, some way, like the opener didn't show up or the host didn't show up. Mm-hmm. And somebody thought that I was silly and they pushed me up there. And wow. uh, so... I was terrified, but I did it, and the crowd went wild, and I thought, whoa, that's It's pretty awesome. powerful, yeah. yeah. So um, so that was my first taste of it, and then when I got to Chicago, um, years later, I just kind of fell into the scene a little hmm. bit. Yeah. Went to Second City. Right. And How um, was that experience? You know, it was cool. I was drunk a lot of the time. <laughs> you know, it was very noble that I intended to go to Saturday Night Live, or, you know, I intended to go to Second City that would ultimately bring me to Saturday Night Live. Right. That was the dream, right? Yeah. Um, what I ended up doing was going to Second City. And, uh, you know, it's funny, Tina Fey and Rachel Dratch and Tim Meadows, all those guys were on the main stage, which is like the real shows, the shows that people paid for right. while I was in the training oh, interesting. Uh, ground. So, like, I would see them from time to time. And back then, I just, you know, I wanted to meet them because they were on the main stage. I didn't yeah. know that they were going to, you know, outlive, outlive me in the entertainment industry, you yeah. know, tenfold. But uh, <laughs> but it was a really neat place. It was a neat experience. It felt cool to be at Second City because in um, the consciousness of a young girl who wants to do comedy, it, it's kind of like Hollywood, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but I did a lot of drinking there. I found a lot of drinking buddies. And so things got... Uh, I said I was going to class, but really I was going to the bar, and I might stop by class. Right. You know, so it started happening that way a little bit more. I did complete the whole training levels, though. So, right. Um, it was cool. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. And uh, I'm sorry for some of the audience members that had to endure me, <laughs> if I'm honest. Yeah. So what were some of the turning points of your personal journey that made you seek help with your alcoholism? Mm. You know, that's such a great question. Man, Kathy, I could tell you that it was, uh, you know, the things that other people knew were happening, like, you know, showing up to work smelling like the night before still. Right, yeah. Or, you know, cheating on somebody and having to have a spouse, like, you know, a partner prove it to me because I didn't believe them because I had been mm. in a blackout, you know, or uh, <sighs> three o'clock in the morning walking down uh, Clark Street in Chicago and having an officer ask me why I was walking around by myself at that hour and mm-hmm. sniffing at him if I could find my car, I wouldn't be walking. <laughs> Uh, wasted out of my mind, right? Right. At least that's what I think I sounded like when I spoke to him. Sure. I might have slurred and it might have all been inside happening. Right. I could tell you that it's those things. Um, and I don't, I mean, those things sucked and uh, they certainly add up and start to create a picture. But for me, what it really was, the big turning points were uh, those moments alone with myself, man. Mm. You know, the moments when I could not stand myself anymore. Mm-hmm. When... Um, I didn't want to drink and I didn't want to drink while I was drinking it, Hmm. you know, when uh, I swore to God I wasn't going to drink again today. And then as I was drinking, I decided, well, I'll start again tomorrow. And I did that for more than a decade. Right. You know, it was the self-loathing. It was the shame. It was, uh, it was the embarrassment of not having more control over myself. Right. You know, um, it was, uh, you know, it was my spirit that was dying. It was my soul that was sick. Really. And, um, and I always had this like feeling 
at the end of my drinking in particular, where, this might sound crazy, but here it goes, I'm telling you anyway. Um, I remember that I had this like really sort of idea that the me that I wanted to be was in me. But I kind of had these moments where I was sort of standing above her, like mm. six feet of ice between me and her, and mm-hmm. she was down there. But I wasn't going to get to her if I kept drinking. like Because every time I started feeling like maybe she and I had a chance to unite and I could become her, mm-hmm. uh, I had to drink again. And things got crazy and things got stupid. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I think the distance between the woman that I wanted to be and the woman that I was... First of all, the honesty, the amount of honesty I needed to be able to say who I was coming, um, that took time. But then when I saw, you know, how much distance was between the me that I wanted to be and the me that I was becoming, um, those are the moments. Those are the real turning points, Mm -hmm. you know, where I think I had to, little by little, just like a a UHF channel click, you know, of a shift. (laughs) Over the course of like a decade or or 12 years that I had to little by little by little say until I did one day, you know, I need to, I need help. I can't do this by myself. So what was that defining moment when you were like, yeah, I need to take care of this and do something? Well, um, were there moments? Oh God, there were so many. And and for, for me, uh, when I was in, in active drinking, I have to say that there were so many times when, in hindsight, I'm like, I cannot believe that wasn't it. Right. I can't believe I didn't stop then. Right, yeah. You know, in my book, I talk about a, a an accident that I was in that nearly claimed my life. Mm. Um, didn't. That didn't do it. Yeah. You know, that was a UHF click, maybe. Yeah. You know, yeah. but uh, overall, um, it took a long time to uh, come out of come out of that place and uh, it was a moment of clarity and the thing is for drug drug addicts and alcoholics in my experiences um the moment the window the the opportunity for grabbing recovery or or choosing to change Mm -hmm. is so quick Mm -hmm. and so fleeting and um you know i could get into a whole nother tangent about why treatment and uh, access to mental health and treatment is so important for that right. very reason. Right. Uh, but we won't go there right Because there is a window of time, and if that is It's a small window of time, yeah. man. You know, it's like, it's like when you're trying to save somebody who's drowning, and they stop kicking for just one minute. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got that long to drag them to the boat. Right. Right? Otherwise, uh, as soon as they realize that they've stopped kicking, and they start kicking again because they're panic. Yeah. You know, and then you're both going down. Yeah. So was there any, like, person that kept, you know, poking poking you about getting help, or was it just the series of events that happened? That's a great question, too. I don't think that there was any one person poking. I think uh, in my world, I seemed to be pretty together. Hmm. Um, I was somebody who... Uh, people came to for advice. I was somebody who people thought didn't need help. Mm-hmm. I was somebody who uh, people admired what she was doing. I mean, I was at Second City for crying out loud. That was really exciting in my world, yeah. you know, particularly because my world was full of people who loved SNL and all of that stuff. And I was all about, I'm going there. And they believed me. Right. Um, I come from a family that drinks. So the way that I drank wasn't any bit you know it didn't stand out a whole lot Mm -hmm. right um so the facade that you had was believable i think so and 
if I'm if I'm being totally honest with you, a couple of years after I stopped drinking, some of my best friends were like, "Oh my god, I'm so glad you knocked it off. <laughs> right. You were a mess." And yeah. they would tell me things like two years into my sobriety uh, that I had no idea they were doing to take care of me in those days. Mm. So, um, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I think you answered it. it okay, was, good, good, who, good. Is good. there one person that poked oh. you? Thank you. So I, you know, I don't think there's one person, but there was an awareness for all of my life. Um, my father was somebody who drank and my mother is somebody who drinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father stopped drinking when I was young and, uh, and his life after the divorce, um, seemed to improve mm-hmm. in his new world. Uh, and so I saw that from a distance right. Him putting down alcohol changed his life. And, um, there was a lot of things there to heal. A lot yeah. of work to be done. Yeah. Uh, but I watched. So his example helped. Um, we continued to drink in my world. My mother and her boyfriends or her husband, my mm-hmm. brothers and I, my friends. Um, and so I had that sort of comparison. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but I also had a real consciousness that people that I knew who were doing drugs and making them available to me. Uh, scared me to death because I just knew I would love them and need more the way that I did with alcohol. Right. And so, um, except for a time or two when people snuck me some trying to, you know, you know, like how somebody will give you a little extra chocolate. Right. They're like, hey, buddy, here you go. (laughs) Or like they make you a burrito and they put extra beef in it, you know. Trying to be nice. Yeah, they're trying to be nice. And and, and they throw a little something on top of what I'm smoking. You know what I mean? Except for those occasions um, I stayed away from the harder drugs because I just knew that they would be the death of me. Right. And uh, so as far as one person, no, but I watched. I watched other people. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw John Belushi. I saw mm-hmm. I saw folks. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Well, and that's good that you had the wherewithal to be the observant in those circumstances and know enough not to go down that road. Yeah. So, I mean, kudos for you on that part. You know. I didn't, I wasn't standing necessarily upright. I wasn't wearing a cape. It wasn't blowing in the wind. Right. It wasn't amazing <laughs> in my strength. I was probably wasted and, you know, holding on with white knuckles to uh, a threat of sanity. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I agree. I'm very grateful. Um, you know, my spiritual life has had to grow and has had to open up for me to be well. Mm-hmm. Um, and in hindsight, I just know that, um, you know, whatever relationship, it, what, whatever it is that I have a relationship with, um, certainly, you know, afforded me some uh, moments of clarity that maybe a lot of people don't get. Right. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Um, that's another thing that the book is about is my journey from knowing what that thing is and, and being in relationship with it. And then moving through a world where everybody has a name for it, mm-hmm. you know, God, and um, and then applying bad behavior with that word. Right. Right. And so then I kind of fo- fell away from it, which, uh, you know, when you take a girl away from her instincts or you take a, a girl away from her spirit, mm-hmm. you know, or a boy or anybody. Yeah. Right. Um, when we're disconnected from ourselves, um, that's... That's the real danger, I think, in this material world, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I read your book. and You did? I have. Hey, thanks, buddy. And uh, so I don't know that I'm confused, but I just need some clarity mm-hmm. on the, um, the growing up with your dad being a pastor. And you just seem to be very much intense. You have a very intense relationship with God. Mm-hmm. 
and it, and be, I'm guessing because of your father being a pastor, so you've always been in the church, so you had that um, relationship, and it it was very. Um, I'm trying to find the right word. Very tactile. Reading your relationship with God seemed very tactile, hmm. like it was somebody that was in the room, hmm. like your best friend. Hmm. Um, and to me, that just really struck me as because that's that's what made it so intense for me to read was hmm. that because you were so concerned about what God thought of you. Hmm. Um, whether you did something wrong or even thought something or, you know, because you're gay. So to me that, so was it because of that intensity of your relationship with God that kind of, I don't want to say brought you to alcoholism, but you know, with you being gay and different and not fitting in the world and you know, what came first? It's kind of like chicken and the egg. That's awesome. I'm really glad that you asked that. It's a great question. And, uh, you know, it makes me happy that something that I wrote would produce that question. I think that's pretty cool because that sort of means that I'm doing what I should be doing mm -hmm. because that's an important question. And frankly, um, one of the struggles that I had was, uh, so human beings want to belong mm -hmm. primarily, yeah, first and foremost, and we find our tribe. And hopefully we find a tribe that allows us to be all of us right. in that tribe. Mm-hmm. Guess what? That rarely happens for any of us. But it always looks like somebody else found it. Right. Right? Yeah, sure. And if I compare what I've got to what they've got, and I'm misinformed, mm -hmm. then I'm in a losing battle. Right? right. I'm never going to measure up because I think they are accepted in all of their colors, mm -hmm. and I am struggling to fit in. Mm -hmm. Right? So you ask about my relationship with God when I was little being because of my dad, I feel like I didn't have a name for God. Mm -hmm. I didn't have uh, rules for God. I didn't anything. What I, what I was as a little girl was happy. Mm. I felt happy. I felt full. I felt in love with the world and the sky and my mm -hmm. family and all of this stuff. And that, I felt like everything was enough. Right. And because my dad was a minister, I feel like I started having language put to things. And at some point, the words that my family was using, like God and prayer and grace and sin and all of these kinds of things, mm -hmm. I started realizing that they were they were calling like my happiness things. and my fullness. They were calling it God. Mm. And, and they were saying that, it wasn't what I thought it was. They mm. were saying that I wasn't good enough to have what it represented. Right. And so I think that that began to create a tremendous amount of shame mm -hmm. inside of me. For me, it happened to be around my sexuality. For me, it happened to be around the rules uh, that it seemed like God needed me to follow per the people outside of me, mm -hmm. right? I never felt like God and me were rule followers. Like we just, we hung out, man. It was cool. Right. We were just cool. You know, right. we was kicking it. Right. And, uh, and all this stuff, right? And then I, and then um, I, I think the real, the alcohol saved my life in that I had so many feelings 
and so much information that I now see was misinformation Mm -hmm. from other people who were hurting and trying to get it right, right? They're human. Mm -hmm. I got so much misinformation that I was trying to incorporate into my world so that I would belong, right? Mm -hmm. That, uh, yeah, I was in a tremendous amount of pain. And uh, in that respect, I truly believe that alcohol saved my life hmm. because it was sort of like the raft that, uh, that allowed me to float over the dissonance, over the confusion, over the things that weren't adding up. Right. And um, unfortunately, uh, when you drink alcohol, alcohol the way that I did, um, the body uh, responds in ways that, you know, it moves into addiction. Right. Um, I have an alcoholic body, which means my body responds differently to alcohol than a non-alcoholic. I mm. literally consume alcohol and my body says, give me more. Mm-hmm. You know, for every drink that I drink, my body wants two more lined up. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I think that a lot of the shame and a lot of the confusion led to the drinking. The drinking helped a lot until it didn't. Right. Um, I want to make sure that I say this, and that is... My experience with shame came from being white in a black community and came from being gay in a straight family. Hmm. I don't think that it's fair. I understand it, and uh, it helped me probably at one point, but I don't think it's fair as a member of the human race that we say that gay people are the only ones with a closet because I think that the closet is shame. Hmm. And I think that when we hide a part of ourselves, whatever it is, right? When we hide a part of ourselves for fear of getting kicked out of where we want to belong, mm-hmm. right? Because we have a need to connect and belong. Right. If I if they know this about me, I'm not gonna, right? Right. right. Maybe it's that I want to be a mechanic instead of run dad's business. Maybe it's uh, I'm part white and they think I'm black. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's God knows what it is, but we all have something yeah. that we have <clears throat> to struggle with balancing to, to be well in this world. And if we talked more about the things that we are ashamed, uh, Dr. Brene Brown says something I love. Mm-hmm. She says, uh, shame cannot, and forgive me if I'm misquoting, but it's something like shame cannot survive empathy. Mm-hmm. So it's like we have to. We have to ask ourselves, and this is me again, this is not Brene, what, what is our shame? What is our closet? Right. What is the thing that we fear others knowing about us, right? And finding that community that allows us to, uh, to not be judged when we say the things that scare us the most to say out loud. Yeah. And that's what I hope this book does. I hope this book says, okay, here's a little girl who had this experience, mm-hmm. uh, but I hope that I say enough of what it felt like for people to identify with it, even if their circumstances were different. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. And it kind of reminds me of the part in the book where you're, uh, you wanted to go into the, um, the black service in the church. Yeah. Did you ever get a chance to go in there? Sure. Sure, I found my way in. Did you? <laughs> yeah, and always to open arms, man. Yeah. Always to open arms. Right. Always, always, always. I was loved and nurtured and embraced uh, without judgment frequently in the black community when mm-hmm. I was growing up, when I was struggling with... Uh, it's funny because I was struggling with being gay in my relationship with God. I didn't call it gay. I didn't know it was gay. I just knew that I shouldn't talk about the way I felt towards my teacher or right. that girl in class. Right. Um, I learned that I shouldn't talk about it, so that became shame, right? Um, 
But then I was also ashamed to be white mm. in the midst of all of the people who loved me and embraced me. Interesting. You know, so so there was a lot going on. And again, yeah. I'm not unique in that. People have their own version of that. Sure. Right. Um, and the beautiful thing is when we can share it and just and listen to each other. Mm-hmm. Let me hear your story. There's We don't have to be right or wrong. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like we, we focus so much on who's right or who's wrong or you don't understand or, you know, you're doing this to me or I'm doing that to you. Yes, all of it is true. Mm-hmm. And let's just listen and hear and find ourselves in each other's story because really all of that stuff is in the way of us connecting. Right. And I think that if you know somebody's backstory, then you understand them better. Yeah. Instead of, you know, filling in the blanks where it's not totally. correct. That's absolutely so, true. I think yeah. so too. Yeah, that's great. So what goes through your mind when you reflect back to those moments? Um, there's a part in your book about you getting out of the car at a stoplight and going, walking down to the liquor store and yeah. get a bottle of Jack. Yeah, Jack Daniels, buddy. And, uh, <laughs> and then there was another one with you driving to St. Paul on coffee and caffeine pills. So what, yeah. what goes through your mind when, and I don't know if you like flash back to those moments ever, you know, just spontaneously throughout the day or if there's moments where you just kind of reflect on your past experience, you know, life, but. Well, I have to tell you, uh, first of all, being a woman in recovery and I still do attend, um, you know, gatherings and, and, and participate in the fellowship of uh, my recovery program. Um, so I am still around people who are newly coming into recovery and I get to see mm-hmm. what it looks like on them. And right. I'm like, oh boy, I don't want to go back there. You know, um, even when they look like they're holding it together on the outside, you know, mm-hmm. they open their mouths and you're like, yep, I remember how their brain is working right now. And I don't want to go back there for nothing. And right. in those moments, I sort of do recall, you know, those, those horrific moments that you're speaking of, um, that I wrote about. And when I was writing it, it was intense because, uh, and I think writing it, I didn't even mean to, but I think I healed some things writing it because I had to go back there and be there in order to write it. Right. right? Emotionally and mentally and everything. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, I'm writing from scars. I'm not writing from wounds, Mm, you know, so that's a big difference. Um, and probably why I was unable to write this book before now. Yeah. Um, but what do I think of when I look back at that, man? I just think, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm alive. Mm. I mean, I don't tell some of the best stories in that book. I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. Because I really want it to be used as a tool to create conversation, right? Right. Um, But it's remarkable how I am able to live today uh, free of the medicine that alcohol was to me Mm -hmm. because of the pain that I was in. And yeah. the confusion that I was in and the fear that I was in. So much fear about what others thought of me. So much fear about whether I was doing the right thing or the wrong thing. So much fear about I was the only one who thought this way. If anybody knew the stuff that was going on in my head, oh my God, they would lock me up. No, mm-hmm. you know what? There's a community of people who have uh, a great understanding of the alcoholic mind, who have a great understanding of the human mind mm-hmm. and how much the way that uh, our brains work or don't work right. can create or can create or destroy our own peace and our own happiness. Yeah. Right. And when we sit with other people, like you were just saying, we sit with other people and we hear their stories instead of 
putting in the pieces that we think, right? Mm -hmm. Like you see me in the grocery store and you might make an assumption about who I am or if you see where I live, you might make a decision about what I know or what I don't know or where I've been. And we don't know. Yeah. We don't know people's stories, man. And we got to let people tell us their stories. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I think about, I'm really grateful to be getting older. Yeah. Uh, you know, honest to God, man, as my brothers like to tease me, they're like, hey, man, you're almost at 50. I said, shut your hole. I'm not almost at 50, but I made it past 45, you know, right. 44, or 40. Right. I mean, I just didn't think I was going to live. I got to be honest. There's yeah. that place in time and that moment when I'm walking down the street uh, with a bottle of Jack Daniels mm-hmm. um, and everything just sort of coming back to life. You know, um, I needed that stuff to breathe. And uh, I'm really, really, really grateful that I don't have that need today. Yeah. You know? And it's a day-to-day thing, I'm sure. Is it for you or? Yeah, the more time that I have uh, away from drinking, uh, I think the more habits and uh, lifestyle choices that I've made habits of that sort of keep me out of the environments Mm -hmm. of. So, you know, I don't feel like I'm, you know, up against the wall every day. Uh, But it's absolutely, I have to understand for me anyway, that the reason that I drank was because I, my soul was sick. Mm-hmm. My spirit was sick. My heart was broken. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the skills. Right. I didn't have the tools or the skills or the uh, guidance or the models mm-hmm. in my life to show me how to hurt effectively, how right. to grieve, right. how to be sad and be okay, how to move through things. I didn't know how to move through pain, so I s- sat in it. And... Um, and today, my relationship with, uh, you know, I just say with spiritual principles, like, you know, the way that I have to live today and the way that I choose to live today uh, keeps me from those dark places most of the time. Right. Yeah. Right. I had a friend commit suicide not long ago. Mm-hmm. That makes that's really hard. Yeah. I didn't want to drink right. because I've learned that drinking doesn't make something bad get better. Mm-hmm. It makes something bad get worse. Right. I add to the problem of somebody gone when I pick up a drink. Um, And I don't know that I'll never drink again. I pray that I don't. Mm -hmm. Right. So in that respect, yeah, it's one 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 thing at a time, one day at a time. Yeah. Right. So I have to invest. uh, You ever heard of the story of two wolves? Mm, My favorite story, Cherokee Indian Cherokee story. No. It's one of my favorite stories. Uh, I'll tell you the brief version, but basically... um, Grandpa sitting at, at a fire with his grandson, mm-hmm. and the fire's crackling. The little guy says, Grandpa, I'm so angry. I was so angry at this guy at school today. I wanted to hit him. And Grandpa says something along the lines of, you know, uh, every human being on this planet has two wolves inside of them, and they're fighting for domination. Mm-hmm. And they're equally strong. And one is uh, the dark wolf, and he is angry and resentful and jealous and envious and afraid. And... Uh, and then there's the light wolf, and he's hopeful and pleasant and pleasing and loving and kind. And, uh, and they're constantly at each other's throats trying to run the show. Mm-hmm. And the little guy thinks for a little bit, and he goes, well, well, Grandpa, which one wins? And Grandpa says, the one that you feed. Mm-hmm. And so what I know today is that when I was trapped in alcoholism, I didn't know that I was feeding the dark wolf. I didn't right. know that that's how it worked. 
and yeah. and I needed the medicine. And today I do the best that I can to feed the light wolf on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that keeps me away from the injuries that need the medication. Right. That's great. For the most part. Yeah. And when I don't, when I feel really, really sad, scared, or otherwise, I have a community of people that I've built relationships with. Right. Because really the solution is relationship and connection. Exactly. Right? I mean, it does take a belong. village for a lot of things, and you need to have that support. So true. Yeah. Can't really, you really can't do anything alone or by yourself. So um, so do you think you'll ever get back into stand-up comedy? Um, or do you think that's kind of come and gone? And, yeah. I don't count anything out anymore yeah. these days. Uh, I'm really enjoying writing. I'm really trying to find a way to just be a writer and a speaker. And mm-hmm. uh, I may be doing a, a radio show. Great. Um, so I'm really wanting to turn my life into uh, something where... You know, I get to incorporate the years of teaching that I did, um, the writing, the stories, mm-hmm. and uh, and do all of that. But um, I really do. I think that I think that the comedy finds its way into my public speaking. Yeah. You know, the comedy finds its way into the classroom when I'm teaching. So it's still there, but it's just a different. It's, it's just a medium. part of me. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a part of me. Yeah. Um, and I still I still hope to host Saturday Night Live one day. <laughs> Yeah, I actually talked to a guy in L.A. and I said, hey, man, t- check this out. Check this out. What if what if we did something crazy? I said, I don't know who you know in L.A. and maybe you don't know anybody who can help us with this. But in case you do, let me just put this out in the universe. What if we had the very first author host Saturday Night Live? <laughs> and the point was to bring uh, the theory of connection and community to the forefront mm-hmm. in a time of national dysfunction and breaking down. Mm. I said, just for fun. Yeah. I said, I'd be great. What do you say? <laughs> so I doubt it will happen. Right. But it's in the universe. I put yeah. it out there, so we'll see. Yeah, you don't know. Um, and, you know, with social media the way it is these days, Yeah, I mean, that's another, you know, sure option. I also have there. dreams of co-hosting Ellen's show when she's ready to uh, retire. retire co-hosting Ellen's show with Justin Timberlake because oh, he, nice. yeah, he's my baby daddy. <laughs> is he? Oh, yeah. My wife already knows. <laughs> but if, if ever the opportunity was, of course, now he's got a wife, so that right. makes it a little bit more so, complicated. You know, but, but you know, at least I can wink at him. Yeah, exactly. You know, so. Uh, so what advice do you have for people that are struggling with addiction in their sexuality and or? Pray to something out there that isn't you. You know that you're not alone. You don't have to pray to the God that other people have taught you about. You just have to sit quietly. And that little tiny, tiny voice that is telling you that you want to live, that's what you want to pray to. Mm. Pray for the strength to make that grow. Don't give up. Try not to give up. Put yourself somewhere in the very least. What I I remember one time, uh, that relapse one of the relapses uh, mm-hmm. that I wrote about, I remember I knew that I was in a bad way because I hadn't drank in a while and I was going down fast. I was drinking a lot that mm. day. And I actually called a buddy and I said, hey, man, I'm not sure I'm not going to drink myself to death tonight. Would you come watch me? Mm. And uh, without judging the situation, uh, right. he did. And uh, so... I'm not kidding when I say drag yourself into a place where there's other people. Right. Don't listen to the alcoholism and addiction, shame. Mm-hmm. These things want you alone. Yeah. Because they can handle you when you're by yourself. Yeah. All they got to do is poison your mind against yourself 
and you'll take care of the hard work. Mm-hmm. But if you put yourself around other people, even people you don't want to be around, just put yourself around other people and uh, give yourself tomorrow. Give yourself tomorrow. And I'm telling you from the other side of a desire to die, uh, it's worth it's worth giving yourself tomorrow because it gets better. Right. Well, I really appreciate you being on and it's been exceptional for me i've enjoyed it immensely and you sharing your story and hopefully we'll have more yeah podcasts like this with you and i i would love that and uh yeah i really appreciate you i appreciate what you're doing i appreciate how well you're doing it oh thank you and um and thanks for reaching out to me and and being interested in my story and thanks for reading it absolutely it's kind of cool yeah it's always cool reading other people's stuff you know what i mean (laughs) thanks a lot jen absolutely and thank you for listening to women who sarcast show music provided by mike imbasciani you can find him at mikeimbasciani.com 